listeners, and we welcome you back to a more somber episode of our Health for Egypt podcast series. I'm coming to you from our off-campus location, uh, as well as our producers, Matt Zenka, Patricia Colella. And as I'm sure you can all appreciate, uh, the state of Ohio remains under a work-at-home order from our state's leadership. And time for a shout-out to our proactive and, dare I say, science-based uh, state leadership, Governor Mike DeWine and Dr. Amy Acton. And this work-at-home order has been extended to the end of April. The COVID-19 crisis, how we're reacting to it, how we might positively impact the outcomes, these are some of the topics that we're going to discuss today with our guest. How we fare through this crisis as individuals, as institutions, as geographies, in my mind is all directly related to the quality, the reactivity, and the resourcefulness of our leaders. And so it is with gratitude that we are able to secure a little bit of precious time with our incoming CEO, Dr. Cliff McGarren. Dr. McGarren will assume the position of system CEO in January of 21 upon the retirement of Tom Venti, who served in the role since 2003. Cliff is currently president of UH's health system. Prior to that, he was president of both our physician network and physician services, where he led system-wide physician strategy, including ambulatory and clinical integration. Cliff is a professor and prior chair of the departments of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery at Case Western Reserve University. And as a surgeon, Cliff co-founded UH's cochlear implant program. Uh, I see here that Cliff and his team have performed well over a thousand cochlear implant surgeries, and that makes this one of the largest programs in the country. Cliff joined in 02, prior to that worked at UMass Medical Center. Cliff also sits on a number of prominent boards. These include IBM Watson Health Provider Advisory Board. He's on the Regional Policy Board for the AHA. He's been selected by the FDA to serve as a consultant on the regulation of ear, nose, and throat devices. And he's also been appointed by the American Academy of Otolaryngology to represent the Joint Commission on Infant Hearing. A biochemistry undergrad at Michigan State, a graduate of the University of Michigan's Medical School, just did his residency here at Case Western Reserve University. And his research and clinical fellowship is in otology and neurotology at Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Cliff. And let me start by asking you, 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 you check in with us repeatedly. How are you doing? How is your family? And with the enormity of the responsibility on your shoulders and, and those of your leadership team, Dr. Simon Beck, Dr. Miller, Sam Brown, Sean Osborne, and Mike Sapsky, we'd like to check in with you. Give us your observations on the current state, our preparedness, and our reaction to the current crisis. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to ask, David. I'm doing well. Um, I'm doing well because in part of the uh, excellent, um, if you will, uh, activities of the people you just mentioned, that being the team, and more importantly, not just those members you mentioned, but everybody. I just spent this morning rounding on not only the floors but the uh, uh, coronavirus uh, intensive care units where we house our patients, and they're so carefully and lovingly really 
watched after by our amazing staff of nurses and environmental service workers, physicians. And when I see this every day, the commitment that is that is not forced, it's discretionary uh, and it's extra discretionary effort of a care is delivered by our team and our uh, really our 28,000 employees, it uh, bolsters me. Uh, and more importantly, I realize that we're going to be the most successful uh, for our community and for the patients who need us. If we all uh, realize, number one, that we have to care for each other and we have to, as we care for each other, we feel better. And when we feel better, we take better care of our patients who need us more than ever. And as a result, we get through this faster and back to normal. So I'm doing well, but mainly because of the strength and the um, devotion of our 28,000 employees that I see every day. It bolsters me. Couldn't agree more. And, and, and we have certainly witnessed everyone running towards the burning building. No one, you talked about it being discretionary, Cliff, and, and certainly no one shied away from, from working above and beyond. Tell us about our current state, um, our, our, our readiness, our, our ability to react, perhaps tell us a little bit about the Unified Command Center, what we're doing, some of the trials and the testing we're doing. Um, as you know, the, the Ventures team is working on the alternate PPE strategy. Give us a little bit of an update in terms of the current state. You know, I will, David. <clears throat> and, um, you know, obviously this event is a, uh, it's a, it's a, major obstacle and a big challenge for not only us, but the, but the entire world. Um, and when I have to answer the question about what is UH's readiness for this particular thing, before I answer the specifics that you went into, I want to kind of um, portray what it is about UH that makes us exceedingly ready for this crisis, regardless, frankly, David, if this crisis was a virus, or the crisis was some other sort of a, a plague or trauma or other incident. And that is that if you look very carefully at all of the departments, whether they be the medical department with infectious disease or the trauma department with its surgeons, we have layers and layers of redundancy of excellence. As they say in sports, we have tremendous bench strength. So it just so happens that this particular crisis that affected us in the nation was that of an infectious disease uh, of the like that we have not seen since 1918 in this country during the influenza pandemic of 1918. And it just so happens that we, as we do in pretty much every medical department, David, have an incredibly um, iconic and high-end infectious disease team. Uh, with layers and layers of redundancy led by Dr. Salata, but the list of others, in many places you'll go in the country, there are one or two deep. We are deep, deep. You know, you go from Dr. Salata and Dr. Armitage, Dr. Sade, Claudia Hoyan, um, and really the list goes on and on and on, including people like Grace McComsey, who runs our clinical research trial. When you have that sort of redundancy, you by definition have a readiness that is at or above most of your um, colleagues in the country. So I want to start out with, because this was an issue involving an infectious disease, our readiness, which was, and we had no preconceived notion that this was going to happen, but our readiness as an organization with regards to always 
standing up and having, if you will, an army in every different division that is at its top with uh, fantastic employees, we were very ready for this. And uh, similarly, we had leadership and a chief operating officer, Eric Beck, who just by chance, but again, I think it goes with our culture and our DNA, he happens to be an expert in crisis and emergent uh, command control uh, through his experience in Chicago as leading the unified command in Chicago during the G8 uh, riots and the crisis around that. In addition to his experience in Dallas uh, as a FEMA contractor during Ebola, he was ready to stand up, frankly, literally within one day, a, a top-notch uh, un unified command center uh, that is really humming 24-7 and is addressing not only the issues that you and I and the community would be most concerned about that being uh, making sure we have enough PPEs, making sure that we have proper uh, techniques of cleanliness, make sure we have proper staffing of our hospitals, but more importantly, it's things that you wouldn't mainly, mainly think about day to day, such as making sure our financial system is ready uh, to deal with uh, reimbursement through FEMA, making sure that our supply chain has multiple redundancies to make sure that we have supplies coming in from not one, but literally dozens of sources. And then finally, having an innovations team on that that helps us come up with creative solutions to problems that sometimes uh, be, uh, make it difficult for other organizations to respond. So this unified command center led by Dr. Beck is literally meeting around the clock. And I mean that, I mean, it meets at 7 a.m. every morning with literally a dozen people, but just so the community knows we're virtual now um, by phone. Uh, but we're all in the workspace, in different workspaces. We meet again at 7 p.m. in multiple calls during the day to get the latest information and react positively. And through this command center, everything I'm going to discuss, in essence, is not an independent activity. It's through the unified command. So, again, how is our current state? This command center acts, as we will, as a overall um, command center and a brain, if you will, that oversees the central nervous system of our response. Our viral testing program, which we are one of the first in the region to not be beholden to other outside companies like LabCorp and Quest. We developed our own PCR-based RNA test for the COVID virus, and we're able to stand up in-house testing to take down test results from days to a week down to hours. And in fact, we were so good at this that the governor, uh, and this is a challenge, has picked us as one of the few hospitals for in the state to receive specimens from around the state. So again, with all um, good deeds comes a little bit of um, extra responsibility and we're accepting that. Similarly, I would argue my premise that we were so prepared by virtue of the talent that we have, we were also the first in the United States to be able to be vetted by Gilead Pharmaceuticals, the company that is producing remsitivir, which is a antiviral drug that has potential promise in, if you will, reversing the disease process in patients with moderate to severe infections, those potentially on their way to be intubated. And we've already deployed that. We have 11 patients already on that drug. Um, and again, we similarly have other drug trials and drug uh, treatments that are uh, percolating faster through UH than any place. The latest is a uh, spray, an oral spray, that is an antiviral barrier that uh, is already being deployed, that clinical trial, being able to protect our caregivers.
The list literally goes on and on, um, David, of new uh, tests and trials that are happening. The latest on, in terms of testing is an Abbott pharmaceutical test where we will be uh, one of the uh, key uh, sites for a uh, literally a five-minute uh, test. And then finally, the ability to then test serology. And for those in the podcast who don't know what I'm talking about, when you are diagnosing someone with COVID, you need to have evidence that the virus is there. And that's done through what's called an RNA test. It's a test that says you have the virus. But to then to determine that someone is truly, if you will, recovered, uh, the human uh, will produce what are called antibodies against that virus, and those are measurable typically seven to 10 days after the initial infection. That is a really important fact uh, that once we know someone has those antibodies and is symptoms-free, you can uh, almost get a good feeling that they are perhaps immune and certainly have recovered from the disease and at this point in time not necessarily vulnerable to having it again. That needs to be worked out a little bit, but the bottom line is there's a serological test that we are going to be one of the first to be able to offer so we could start uh, doing that. I think these things in and of themselves are incredible, incredible testaments to my original hypothesis that when you have a team that is excellent and is used to excellence, um, they will respond in such a way that their creativity and ability to do things um, is um, you can't even predict where it's going to go. And we're seeing that. One of the biggest concerns. I'm sorry. Go ahead, David, please. No, that's that's just incredible, Cliff. And I think the 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 depth of that response just really reflects, uh, as you said, who we are culturally. But perhaps the corollary question, and maybe we can infer the answer. But there must be systems close to us here in Ohio who aren't in the same position. What's your observation been of that? Yeah. And and what do you think they can, should, and and might do? Well, I mean, we're seeing it in real time. Unfortunately, there's only a few systems now that, for example, can do in-house um, coronavirus testing and get results the same day or within hours. And um, we have been working very carefully with the governor's office and the Ohio Department of Health because we have to help them. Um, and so we are trying very hard um, to step up the ability not only to help them by doing testing on our platform, which we have some work to do to scale up to that level, but along the, uh, if you will, the, the, the flavor of your question, there are also other health systems that don't have, if you will, the necessary sequence of um, clinical assets to take care of a, a patient. And let me just briefly talk about uh, that, and I'll then answer your questions about what other hospitals are doing and what we're doing to help them. You know, if, uh, the, the goal of all of us is to avoid getting this virus. And we do that by wearing personal protective equipment. That's called PPE. Um, yes, there's a shortage, but this system, our hospital has been able to, through an unbelievably um, versatile supply chain, get our hands on masks uh, and gowns and, and these sort of devices that we need to help protect our people. But if someone gets this, and as you know, 
the numbers in Ohio are, are starting to grow. If someone comes down with the coronavirus, the data, certainly out of China, which has a large experience as well as ours, indicates that 75 to 80 percent of folks who get this will have a uh, flu-like illness, um, moderate to severe, but will be able to convalesce at home. In other words, not need uh, to come in the hospital. The folks who need to come into the hospital are those who begin having difficulty breathing um, and catching their breath. And when you measure their PO2, their oxygen, it is starting to decline. Those people come in to our hospital and hospitals, and that's about 15% or so to 20% of the totality of patients who have COVID. So the hospitals have to be prepared to be able to handle those 15 to 20% based on the death of those patients in the population. And so a hospital has to be prepared for step one. Step one is admit them to the hospital and have them ha have oxygen delivered through nasal cannula or a mask. Pretty much most hospitals and anybody can do that. But the next step is a smaller group, anywhere from three to 5%, that doesn't work because their lungs are more severely affected and they have to be intubated on ventilators. And there is a fairly limited supply. Fortunately, UH, as well as our colleagues across the street, um, have um, a supply of ventilators such that we know that we'll be able to handle not only a doubling, but a tripling of our uh, patient load. And so the governor's team, with our help, has divided the state into eight regions. And what's become abundantly clear is our region, which is called Region 2, which is the northern part of Ohio, northeast, right on the lake, uh, is very rich with resources as compared to some of the neighboring regions. So there is a plan if there's a surge for us to be able to take care of some of the ventilator patients from the other regions. And then finally, in terms of the last part of the process, if a patient who uh, uh, fails a ventilator, in other words, the ventilator is not, if you will, getting a job done, there's a there's a process called ECMO, which stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. It's a fantastic technology, which is essentially an artificial lung, taking venous blood, oxygenating it, and then returning it to the arterial supply. And uh, we fortunately have uh, close to 30 of those machines um, because, again, going back, we're prepared in a number of fronts to be able to scale up that way. Fortunately, we haven't had to use that too often so far. We only have one or two folks who've needed it. And fortunately, they've been able to come off it, meaning that it worked. But in the event that regions around us that are neighboring that simply don't have those machines, those patients, we will need to, with our colleagues here in Cleveland be need, needing to take care of those folks. So we're planning a fairly uh, rigorous plan of uh, expanding our efforts and expanding our ability to take care of patients from, as I mentioned before, uh, doubling 200%, tripling 300%, and possibly up to 350% of our normal capacity. And uh, so we have a lot of responsibility, but I think our employees and our doctors, our nurses, it a little bit feel honored and frankly feel as though, you know, with great, um, with great uh, treasures that we've been given uh, based on our, our, our staff and our experience and our assets comes great responsibility. And I think everyone here is taking that very seriously. The so-called uh, noblesse oblige, as they say in French, uh, for that is the obligation of the nobles. Not that we're noble, but we certainly uh, have some great assets and we have to live that. Um, we are, as as I mentioned, you asked me earlier about alternate PPE strategies. Um, 
you know, for folks who are in low risk areas, we're producing our own uh, masks. We have an unbelievable team who's literally sewing masks uh, over at the MSC with the capacity of delivering 100,000 masks. And then finally, for the more, um, if you will, sought after masks, the so-called N95 mask, the mask that has the most um, effective filters, the ones that theoretically have the least chance of having a small microparticle get through to the human nose or mouth, the so-called N95 mask. We are in very serious talks with two organizations that have devised a mechanism of cleaning them so they could be reused, both Battelle Organization in Chicago, in a Columbus and Steris um, here in the Mentor area. Uh, we are working with, in fact, the Steris program, which uses a um, kind of a moisturized peroxide fog, um, <clears throat> is going to be tr uh, using UH as its principal uh, first site, uh, the best we can tell. Um, so, I think if you look at the issues that most people are concerned about, uh, that is testing. Uh, drug trials, PPE strategy, and doing it in a unified way, um, I feel very good that our team is responding very well. What are we What are we obviously preparing for? We're preparing for what you hear every day on TV, the surge. And as unfortunately our colleagues in New York are seeing, uh, that surge is a significant logarithmic increase in the amount of patients who have it. And again, the good news is 80% of them do very well uh, without significant hospital care, but 20% of them need our care. That 20% uh, is a lot of patients in a very, very uh, hard hit area. So we're we're hoping for the best, but we're preparing for the worst. Got it, got it. And you know, my preamble referenced leadership, Cliff, and uh, certainly we understand from the New York experience that density is is not their ally. But I'm concerned about other jurisdictions, perhaps the Floridas and other places where, unlike Governor DeWine, unlike some of the more proactive and aggressive um, federal and state level leadership uh, that, that might have been uh, impactful, that that isn't happening. Tell us what, uh, t t tell us, give us some thoughts with regard to some of these other geographies that might not be as, uh, as able and as ready to, to withstand this. Well, I think there's a <clears throat> there's a wonderful culture in the Midwest. You know, I grew up in the Midwest, but then I I spent a decade or so in the Boston area, both at UMass and Harvard, and I really <laughs> I loved it. I loved it out there. Uh, but there's a certain um, uh, we're all in it this together type attitude in the Midwest, and it's very emblematic in Ohio. And uh, uh, it made it very easy in terms of the overall culture of the folks who live here for Governor DeWine himself, who's an Ohioan, um, to be bold and do what probably most people knew um, was the right thing to do. But he had the vision, he had the guts, and he frankly, um, Mike, I'm giving credit to the population in Ohio, he had a population that was willing to listen um, to a leader. Uh, and that was, he was one of the first to, if you will, keep kids home from school. He was one of the first to close restaurants and bars and gyms and nail salons and uh, literally weeks before some other states. And we're witnessing just to the north of us, I mean, 
you know, literally Michigan is our northern neighbor and they have three to four times the amount of cases we do and are running into real trouble. And I don't want to necessarily blame um, the timing of that governor's decision to do the things that Mr. DeWine did, Governor DeWine did, because there may be other factors. But if you look at the areas that they're having significant problems you know, Florida, look at Louisiana, which had a Mardi Gras that you can argue maybe it should have been curtailed. Even a St. Patrick's Day parade in the thick of things, maybe that should have been curtailed. Um, hats off to Governor DeWine because uh, that would not have happened. If we had Mardi Gras here uh, in Cleveland, there certainly wouldn't have been a party probably then. And certainly there wasn't a St. Patrick's Day parade here in, in Ohio. So we have to give the governor a lot of credit, but I don't want to minimize the credit of our population that does the right thing, uh, has good values, and um, uh, is able to listen and to reason from a leader. I mean, the Florida issue with spring break, I mean, God, lots of those kids, unfortunately, now are coming home uh, with uh, significant infections. Um, and, and, you know, that was just a week and a half ago. Um, yeah. So I think foresight, um, I think uh, our culture, and um, I think when this is said and done, we're going to learn a lot about um how to, if you will, sequester a population. And I, I'm very confident that we're doing it well here. So you said when this is all done, and of course we, we can't preempt and project when that will be, and none of us will come out of this unscathed in some manner. But this will surely change the manner in which we deliver health care. We've seen a dramatic uptick in the use of telehealth and remote care uh, by, by a magnitude of hundreds of percent. Look, is that here to stay? Is this the new, the new uh, delivery modality? Um, has, is, it, uh, is it staying in the sun here finally for telehealth? You know, I, <clears throat> I think there's a silver lining. There, has to, there, will, there is a silver lining in anything that happens. As you know um, from your knowledge of history, David, uh, that any sort of human um, crisis, there will be um, some tangible benefits that emerge from it that can be used, if you will, in peacetime or when the dust settles. And I think one of them that you hit on is 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 telehealth. Um, we've been struggling to stand up telehealth for a number of reasons. One, there's a limited amount of interest on the part of patients to use it. There was a limited amount of, if you will, a motivation of hospital systems to stand it up. Um, some of it was economic. Uh, let's be honest, many of the insurance companies weren't paying for it. Uh, so this crisis forced the governments to really motivate insurance companies to accept that as a viable form of interaction with parity in many cases from a financial standpoint. Uh, number two, we didn't necessarily have the it, the uh, acceptance by our providers, our doctors, our nurse practitioners, 
to do it. Well, now they, they, they have to, right? Because they still have to see their patients and they want to see their and take care of their patients. So now they're getting facile with the technology and the technology is improving every day because of the need for it to get better. So when we emerge from this, we'll have, probably have a much larger part of our portfolio as it relates to um, clinical interactions with patients being performed through telehealth virtual modalities. And that will be here to stay. I don't want to predict what percentage of it will be because there's something about the direct human-human contact, whether it be uh, what we can't do today, the, the shaking of the hand, the, um, the comforting of a patient who's uh, scared and the literal presence of one human to another in terms of um, being able to develop trust. Um, those are very, very hard to completely replicate in a telehealth visit. So I do believe the ultimately the pendulum will swing so that when, again, we think of this as a memory, that there will still be more in-person visits uh, than not. But we'll probably have a a, a big swath of our portfolio will remain tele, telehealth. So that's a good thing. In addition, this, you know, if you think about the rapid deployment and movement of the FDA in moving from what sometimes was a laborious um, trajectory of getting drugs and treatments that show great promise approved, and now you're seeing these done in a short period of time. I'm very hopeful that this cadence and this level of urgency around what appears to be something good for humanity will move the FDA to a little different platform in terms of their timeliness of approving. And then even locally, I'll, I'll, I'll admit we have an IRB, which is our institutional review board, which has to review uh, clinical trials. And what I've seen happen <clears throat> as a result of the crisis you know, we had the IRB for the remdesivir trial um, under the uh, PI of uh, Grace McComsey, Dr. McComsey, that would have taken months, literally, to get through our um, our IRB, and it was done in 48 hours. So I'm hopeful that one of the silver linings of this event will be that processes, whether it be telehealth, whether it be approval of drugs, will will we'll be on a, on a different cadence. And then in addition, I think that ingenuity, human ingenuity is at its height when there's some form of an external stress. So we're starting to see things like the ability of a hospital to clean its PPEs. No one ever thought about it before, but I will guarantee you when this is all said and done, we will have the ability to do that. We're also seeing things that never would have either been forced to have been contemplated. You know, right now we look at respirators for ventilating a patient in the intensive care unit, and let's say we have about 453 of those, but let's say we need another 200 if there's a surge. We figured out how to take a ventilator in the in the operating room that and retrofit it to work. And the most fascinating thing I've recently seen is I've seen some of our own people working to develop and build ventilators right here in Cleveland um, with some incredible uh, manufacturers. So again, creativity, ingenuity, forcing and pushing the best out of our workforce uh, is what I'm seeing happen.
Got it. And, and I'd tell you just a, a note on the ingenuity, the reaction and the collaboration piece, Cliff. We're also seeing a tremendous amount of cross-industry pollination right now. We have already had existing relationships with a lot of our ecosystem outside of, of healthcare, but a kind of relationship with the likes of Eaton and NASA and Magnus and, and many other organizations has been tremendously amplified by everyone's willingness to uh, be uh, innovative beyond the confines and the, the constraints, the traditional constraints of, uh, of healthcare. And to the point you're making with regard to ventilators, we are seeing some incredible um, reconfigurations of uh, CPAP machines. And we're seeing, uh, to your point, with regard to homegrown parts being 3D printed. In fact, some of these are technologies that we are uh, rapidly in, in, in an agile manner, manner testing here with our clinical uh, support uh, to determine viability. But let me pivot to now some impacts. Obviously, uh, the financial impact on healthcare, on healthcare systems, but as importantly, possibly more importantly, the, the emotional, the psychological impact on uh, those at the front line or those near the front line. Talk to us a little bit about impacts, financial, emotional, psychological, Cliff. Well, I mean, I, uh, I I certainly will talk about financial, but I, I got to talk a little bit about the emotional, um, and um, what a couple things that that I'm seeing. Um, you know, interestingly, one of the things that all hospitals have have, have had to do um, during this crisis is limit, uh, and in fact, uh, not allow family members uh, to be to be uh, in the hospitals with their loved ones. I was rounding this morning uh, on a, a floor in the Lerner, and what's happening is because these patients can't and don't have family members, some of them, you know, to help them after major surgery, because remember, people are still getting sick. I think there's a people we need to remind everybody that most people in our hospitals right now are not COVID patients. Uh, they're people who need and still need what we call essential procedures, people who have new onset uh, heart disease who have need emergent heart surgery, people who have been waiting for a transplant and now the transplant's ready, or people who've come in with uh, strokes or cerebrovascular issues and need to be treated. What we're finding is that the emotional, um, if you will, uh, needs of the patient are now even more being transferred to the nursing staff than ever before. In other words, I was talking to a nurse who said, every one of these patients now, because I'm the only person they see, not only sees me as their nurse who gives the medicine, but also as their family member. And and what's incredible is the amount of giving that these nurses want to do, but it is emotionally um, exhausting uh, for them. In other words, the emotional work is almost as big of a new additive, not to say that they didn't care about their patients, they love their patients, but imagine these patients who'd have nobody, but this nurse now is essentially their family and they have to be able to be able to be there emotionally for these folks. It's it's a whole new way, if you will, of additional responsibility that is affecting our frontline uh, caregivers. And that's something we have to be very thoughtful about because um, um, 
we have to preserve these amazing people. And so we're trying our best to deploy emotionally re, emotional resilience programs, uh, counseling programs, and these sort of things. But I wanted to say that first because I don't want in any way uh, first one to think that my primary concern is financials. But financials are important as an incoming CEO. I will tell you that every hospital in the United States has had a dramatic decline in its um, in its financial uh, situation because the majority of the work that's done that ultimately pays the bills, if you will, are the elective surgeries and the elective procedures and the x-rays and the MRIs, so on and so forth. Those are down per government orders uh, by nearly 90%. And if you can just do the math, uh, if you're down 90% of your if you will, um, most important revenue stream for three, four months, um, it really puts a burden on the resources of a hospital. Now, fortunately, UH uh, has um, has resources, and we're able to. Um, we're not in any risk, or we're not in any, um, if you will, uh, situation where we're. Uh, um, worried about uh, ourselves at this point. But one thing we are, we do know is that if that with this continuing for at least two to three months, um, it affects the margins that any hospital system will make. And again, not just us, but any hospital system. And as you know, David, it's the margins. It's the it's the three or four percent margin, or two percent. Uh, you know, most hospitals, by the way, as you know, live on a one point six percent margin around the United States. About twenty-five to thirty percent of hospitals have no margin. In other words, before this happened, are losing money. Fortunately, we've run anywhere between a three, two and a three percent at times, a three point five percent margin. You know, on a four and a half billion dollar year system, it runs anywhere from one hundred and twenty to one hundred sixty million dollars. Those are the dollars, and that's separate from philanthropy. That's separate from investments. But those are the dollars, David, that allow us to reinvest in capital projects. So we have to rethink right now how and what we're going to be doing, at least for a while, with with these sort of projects and make sure that um, we're spending our money wisely. And um, we are not anywhere near this state, but we're watching other hospitals, and you could read the news just like me, back there's modern healthcare. There's major hospital systems in the United States um, that are having much more trouble right now than we are. They're they're furloughing people, uh, furloughing nurses and doctors. We want to do everything we can uh, to avoid that. Um, and for the foreseeable future, that's our uh, position. Uh, but make no mistake, this this perhaps from a financial standpoint is the biggest challenge that any hospital CEO. Uh, will have um, probably in their lifetime. Understood, and and for that reason, grateful that the team that we have is in place. Cliff, uh, starting with you. Now there is obviously a statistical inevitability that something like this will occur in the future. It might not be a a virus. It could be a, a natural disaster. God forbid, it could be a, a something more dramatic. Uh, like a war act, et cetera, and obviously we pray none of that comes to fruition. But as a result of what we are going through now, how should we think about better 
preparing or differently preparing? What preparing? What 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 should our learnings be coming out of this, Cliff? Yeah, you know it, when I um, was um, looking at this position um, coming in as CEO, um, I will have to tell you um, that up to this point, the system has done a great job in growing and ultimately creating a system of 18 hospitals. But because most of these additions were fairly new, David, within the last three to five to six years, um, we have to um, and haven't yet fully evolved into what we call systemness. In other words, we are a system, but in terms of a truly aligned system whereby we can work in unison with a single decision point that can spread through the entire frame of 18 hospitals, 48 major medical office buildings, and 200 different doctor practice sites. We have not yet reached the ability before this event um, whereby we had, and we were working toward it, uh, whereby we had a so-called unified command um, whereby literally in 24 hours we can make a decision about a new uh, protocol or a new policy or a new way of treating a particular type of patient and we would be confident that it would be dispersed throughout every reach of the realm, if you will. Um, what has happened, which I think this event is going to help us in the future, is that we have broken down all those silos, we've broken down those walls, and this has forced us to have exactly what I was just alluding to, a mechanism of a unified command led by a team who, when a decision is made at 7 a.m., it is received, it is affirmed, and the activity begins literally within hours in every frame and part of the hospital. This event, this COVID event, has forced us to do that now. My feeling is going forward, we will maintain a, basically, a uh, not necessarily the same intensity, but we will, when we reboot and we re reopen, for, if you will, for normal business in a month or two, we are going to need and we will maintain that same command and control structure. Certainly having an eye and ear and having parties participate, but we will have a command structure that will allow us to be able to mobilize the entire system very quickly. So to answer your question, what are we doing to prepare for, God forbid, an earthquake or a series of tornadoes or a war act or the other things that you were talking about? I think it's to be able to maintain a command structure that allows the system to truly be a biological system where everything from supply chain to nursing to physician behavior to um, facilities management, uh, power grid management, everything is able to be managed from one data control center uh, with the best minds at the table. That is, so, that is, and as you know, the, the Ventures team and individuals like Sam Brown were, were working on what these types of command centers, unified dashboards, would look like obviously this type of work commenced before before these, this dramatic turn of events. But 
Certainly a technology-enabled um, system, this, I think, is uh, going to be a differentiator for us. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Cliff, you, you're a voracious reader. I know that you're a, a consumer of data and information from a variety of sources. What are you looking to right now? Where are you getting your, your real time, your most pertinent, your most actionable, uh, perhaps your most um, um, relevant information and data right now? Share with the, with the listeners. Yeah, so um, I'll go through what I, I typically go through. I mean, in, early in the morning, um, I'll go through the Wall Street Journal um, uh, and the New York Times um, just for information that's gotten to the public sector. Um, I certainly read the plane dealer in the morning, the data. I want to know what's happening locally. As uh, we know from Tip O'Neill, all politics are local. You have to know what's going on at the state, county, and city level. And then during the day on my iPhone, I have feeds uh, from the OHA, uh, which is doing a great job under Mike Abrams' leadership. Um, I will be getting a download of, of Mike DeWine's two o'clock um, um, conference. I have, uh, I really enjoy getting modern healthcare and Becker's um, uh, daily feeds, news feeds of, of what's going on. I have a, um, very close relationship with the American Hospital Association. I sit on the regional policy board, and uh, we have phone calls, conferences, and, and data feeds that come from that, so you can get global uh, information. Um, we have had the luxury um, of being able to have literally every day a phone call with our leaders yesterday, uh, myself and Tom and Eric were able to speak uh, with um, our Congressman David Joyce uh, the, the day before, our County Commissioner Armin Budish. Uh, um, we spoke um, early Monday morning uh, with um, Governor DeWine um, and have a free line to him and Amy Acton. Uh, we've been very close to the HHS and Eric Hardigan, who's the Deputy Secretary of HHS under um, Mr. Azar. And we've been speaking with him. We've also have been speaking fairly regularly with our senators, um, Sherrod Brown uh, and uh, Bob Portman. And the last thing that I think has been perhaps the most beneficial, at least for me, is I have um, in my role as president of the physician organization before I um, before this new uh, posting that I have. Um, a group of the 12 top hospitals, uh, presidents of physicians practices. We have a, 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 a society, if you will, and we literally have conference calls every two weeks and we have uh, listservs every day where we share information of what's the best way to deal with PPE shortage, what's the best policy for uh, eliminating elective surgeries, what's the best policy for dealing with um, you know, visitation policy of uh, families. And I think all these together, I feel very uh, connected. I couldn't imagine what this would be, be like. I mean, even in the early 80s, uh, you know, when I was a medical student, we were dealing with AIDS um, and I was at University of Michigan. I mean, the only thing we knew was just waiting for the nightly news. And there was no such thing as a internet or email or listservs or anything. We just were beholden to whatever information we had locally. Um, and it w I just couldn't imagine us being able to be as successful as we're being in terms of knowing what to do, how to do it, um, knowing how to brainstorm around 
quick innovation without us being able to literally communicate in real time. So, I mean, the, there's even more things that I look at, but I'm, um, you know, and the other thing I think, David, is that you all know, I mean, you know, I consider you a leader here. You look at things that I don't see and Eric looks at things and Tom looks at things and we have a group of 15, 20, 30 leaders and each of us by definition is perusing a different maybe data set than the other. And when you're together, which we're at constantly because that's how we do it, uh, each person maybe have a little bit more information than the other. And so that's why it's so important that we're all together. But I think to answer your question, one more thing that I'd like to add, um, I'm a big, as you mentioned, reader. And what I'm reading right now, um, there's really two historical analogies. Uh, one was when Churchill um, took over, and literally in the days of him taking over in 1940 as prime minister, uh, the uh, Germans were attacking, and how he dealt with creating a nerve center um, in uh, in London um, and was able to create and mobilize forces um, and really withstand uh, the, the German Air Force and uh, then later carry on to the end of the war and win. Um, that is, I'm reading that intently and I'm also reading how uh, Roosevelt, when he came in in 1932 and the country was in real trouble in the depression and he set up all these agencies and um, those are very motivating for me um, because these are also global events um, and um, those folks had a lot less resources than we did, uh, we do. And those uh, helped me realize that, um, that there's really nothing new. Uh, humans have faced, you know, crisis upon crisis through the ages and ultimately um, through ingenuity and the human intellect and teamwork uh, and mutual support, uh, we've gotten through every single one of them. So I have no doubt that we're going to do the same thing here. The best of UH is coming out right now. The yeah. best of the people are coming out. Completely, completely agree. And perhaps on that point, before I close, Cliff, um, we know that all of our colleagues are working uh, tremendous hours. You talked about a round-the-clock uh, willingness and ability to be to be responsive, and certainly many many of the members of of all of our teams are are putting in this type of effort and this type of work. Many of many of our colleagues are going to be listening to this. Give us uh, give us some closing thoughts. What message would you would you have for the collective us as we um, as we are probably by some measures three four six days away from uh, the surge, the proverbial surge. Yeah, I can't help going back to this. First of all, I think, you know, there's two messages. One is for, if you will, uh, the medical community, and I'm sure every single leader will be saying this, and that is that we will come through this, but we'll come through it better by making sure that we take care of ourselves, each of us as a leader. We listen to the recommendations from our infectious disease folks about keeping our distance, about um, washing our hands, about uh, making sure that we're using PPE where it should be used, uh, and these sort of things. And the bottom line is we will come through this. Uh, humanity always has, and it's always gotten stronger. But I would say in closing that 
UH is particularly, if you will, evolved and bred um, to be supremely uh, able and ready uh, uh, to handle such a crisis. And I just go back, and I, I've said this a couple of times, and I don't want people to think that this is all I, I have to say, but I, I don't know if you read my blog this week, but I think it bears repeating. You know, this hospital has a history of being at the forefront and being able to handle something challenging. You know, in 1916, there was a call, and I don't know if you know this, but there was a call during World War I before U.S. entered the war uh, for a hospital to send doctors and nurses and essentially uh, go to France and open up a base hospital. And UH was the first, it was called Lakeside then, was the first to respond. And we sent dozens and dozens uh, to Europe in 1916, didn't return to 1919. While our half our staff was gone, Cleveland was hit with the Spanish influenza. And as you know, it was a devastating uh, pandemic. 50 million people died around the world. And our beleaguered staff um, then mounted the most aggressive response and basically took care of Cleveland. And in fact, our hospital and the uh, nurse, uh, nurses who were remaining uh, in the States while many of the, the doctors were abroad uh, received tremendous accolades as being the uh, strength of the organization. Similar in World War II, um, our, our physicians and nursing staff went off uh, to the Pacific Theater, and we had to, uh, the hospital to rally with reduced forces and manage. This hospital has a DNA. The people who work here have inherited a, a DNA, a type of uh, resilience, I think, that makes us imminently prepared to be um, and come out very strong on the other side of this. And it's incredible when you talk and you meet the people who are UH people, the uh, level of commitment they have. And, and it's funny because we're not necessarily all related to the nurses and doctors and staff of the 1918, nor the staff of 1944 and 45, but it is this building. It is these this history. It's this um, can-do group. So I guess in closing, I want to say we are um, we're bred to be able to manage difficult situations and people look to us for leadership. It's happening today. As I mentioned before, the governor has asked us and a few of our colleagues in this region to take care of nearly half the state because we are better prepared. Very so again, process. yeah. So uh, everyone needs to realize uh, that um, we can do this. Our forefathers and foremothers did this, and we will come out okay. Jeff, we are really grateful for your time, for your steady leadership right now. We, we look forward to an opportunity to, well, actually, first of all, to be in the same room together. We tend to, yes. to take that for, uh, for, for granted. And uh, to get back to whatever the new normal re reveals itself to be, and uh, perhaps some semblance of the of the business of healthcare that we're in, our relentless focus on our patients and our providers' well-being, and of course, that of our communities and our populations. So 
I thank you. This is David Sylvan with UH Ventures, and we will catch you all again soon.